0: You guys sound fantastic today. Good morning, everyone. My name is Ben. Welcome to Four Corners Church. A special welcome to all of our guests. We're so glad that you are with us. You've joined us for the third week of a message series called Grace That Is Greater. You may have received, you should have received when you came in. The message notes, the front looks like this. On the back, you can follow along with what we're doing today. And we're going to park our attention for a few minutes in Luke chapter 6. So if you have your Bible or turn on your phone if you would like to Luke chapter 6, We're going to begin with about verse 27, but before we get there, I want to take you through a couple of small things to just kind of orient you, because this series, Grace That Is Greater, has stirred up a lot of stuff for some folks. So before we jump into all that, I'd like to teach you a verse from the Bible. It's not a complicated one. It comes from the writings of Peter, the apostle, who was so human and so undeveloped when he began to follow Jesus, like most of us, like, in fact, all of us. And yet his engagements with Jesus completely changed him. And he learned some pretty powerful truths about what life with God is like. And so later on in his life, after Jesus has died and been resurrected, and Peter emerges as a major leader in the church, he writes a couple of letters. You have them in your Bible, 1 Peter, 2 Peter. And in 1 Peter, there's a powerful verse that we're going to make sure you know today. It goes like this. Cast all your care on him. Because he cares for you. Cast all your care on him because he cares for you. Now, I don't often ask for participation, but I thought we could just take those two phrases and we could just repeat them back. So one more time, here's the whole thing. Cast all your care on him, for he cares for you. Can we just do the first part of that? Cast all your care on him. Ready? One, two, three. Cast all your care on him. And then the second part, for he cares for you. For he cares for you. Now, I thought about that verse pretty Often this week, because there's been so much that has surfaced, as we've talked about, the grace that can operate in relationships that allows a person who's been hurt to forgive. We've been talking about this forgiveness thing that God calls Christians to and reconciliation, and as we've talked about that, it's almost as if we've pulled the scab off of some emotional sores for some folks in the room. And that's a very beautiful, and at the same time, emotionally challenging thing to do. So this verse in 1 Peter came to my mind consistently through the week because I thought about it. Think about this with me if you don't mind. Think about this, that you're not gonna cast your care on anybody if you don't believe they care for you. I mean, you're not gonna give the thing that's meaningful to you, the thing that is a burden to you, to anybody to help you, unless you're convinced they actually care for you. So Peter tells us this guy who messed up and Jesus loved him, this guy who really royally messed up and Jesus brought him back, Jesus pursued him and brought him back into a relationship. In one of the letters he writes to leaders and to Christians in his time, he wants them to understand something about the nature of God that I think makes the conversation we're going to have today easier to understand its implications. And it's very simple. He cares for you. And I wonder today how deeply you believe that. Like, I don't mean do you know it's true because it's in the Bible. That's that's an appropriate place to begin believing that statement. It's in the Bible. It's about God. It's true. But I'm not asking if you have a mental knowledge of it, or even now that we've kind of practiced it, if you know it by heart. What I'm asking is, is deep down, do you really believe your heavenly Father cares for you? One of the ways you'll know. It's how easy it is for you to cast your cares on him. How easy, how quickly can you give God the burden of your heart? The things that can weigh you down if they're negative and the things that just produce anxiety, even if it's a positive opportunity and you're just hopeful that it happens, it can still be a weight on you. How quickly can you give God what's on your heart and on your mind? Now, the reason I wanted to start there today is because the conversation we're going to have today, without believing deep down that God cares for you, that he wants you to put your concerns on him, he wants you to put your cares on him, without that, what we're going to talk about today for believers is very, very difficult. It's incredibly difficult even when you do give it to God. I was reminded this week and last week in emails and texts and private notes that were given to me about just how difficult it is to talk about forgiveness. And we all love forgiveness in one direction when it's given to us. I mean, most of us in this room have been living long enough to know that you're not perfect, that you're actually gonna make a handful of mistakes, if not many of them. And when you do that, it's gonna hurt people you care about. You're gonna have a a short temper you're gonna speak before you think. You're gonna say a word you didn't mean. Sometimes you're gonna have a feeling in the moment and it's transitory, it's not even really that deep. But from that feeling, from that emotion you're having, you're gonna act, you're gonna speak, you're gonna think. And when you do it, it's going to rub off negatively around the people that you're doing life with that you care about. When that happens, we love forgiveness. When they look at us and say, I know you, I love you. Yeah, that thing matters to me, but it doesn't destroy the relationship. I still am willing to work through it with you. And some of us in the room, like me, we've blown it big in some relationships. And we love forgiveness in that direction. But the Lord Jesus clearly, in black and white language, calls his sons and daughters, Christians, calls us to walk not with forgiveness in one direction, but to walk with forgiveness that flows in both directions. Both the forgiveness that we receive from our Heavenly Father, from other people we're doing life with, and the forgiveness that we offer other people who have hurt us, who have wounded us, who've put emotional scars on us. The truth is, is if we could look with a special pair of glasses today at people, you wouldn't see the folks who got up and kind of put themselves together to make a public appearance in a church today. If you could put on special glasses that could see the emotional journeys of people and the wear and tear it puts on hearts, some people in this room are incredibly scarred up. None of us are without some wounds and evidence of wounds. And so for believers, the forgiveness requirement is both an incredibly large and complicated issue that the Lord put right into our laps And at the same time, it's a very beautiful thing. Just to give you a sense of how difficult it is, here's some of the language that was given to me this week Pastor, I really want to do what you're talking about, but I'm just not ready to reconcile yet. And then he went on to tell the rest of his story. In the last two weeks, three different people in our church have come up to me and said, I was sexually assaulted. And I hear your words, I would like to be free. I don't even know how to do that. One person wrote, My spouse has been unfaithful repeatedly. And I'm trying to do what's right and not sure what to do. One guy said, My brother took advantage of me in our business dealings, in effect, stole thousands of dollars. And he's my brother. And yet it hurts, and every time I move closer to him, I'm reminded of the pain. Now that's just four or five I've picked. I bet you, if you wanted to, you could think today about the difficulties you've experienced with people. That maybe, especially when there was a relationship that was kind of oiled and running smooth, and then all of a sudden, their brokenness, their humanity their selfishness, their lack of thought, their carelessness showed up and it's as if they poured sand into the engine that was moving that relationship along. And it comes grinding to a halt. And it's now not just a thing that's no longer functioning, it is a thing that is painful and hurtful to even consider. Now while that's happening in this room and certainly online as well, there's another dynamic that's also happening. There's a dynamic that in this room there are a handful of people who have scars and have known the pain, and yet somehow they are able to move on. While some people in this room are stuck with a handful of things that have happened to them, and any of us hearing their stories would say rightfully so, understandably so, At the same time, there are people in this room who've had incredibly awful things happen to them through no fault of their own, and they're able to move forward. They're able to go on. They're able to live as if that hurt while it did happen. doesn't define their lives, doesn't stop everything that occurred, doesn't stop all the momentum of their life, even though all the stuff that occurred to them is horrific and horrible. And when they think about the event, they're pained a bit, but they're not pained to stopping engagement. And some people have reconciled and have active relationships with people who are very, very, very mean to them. It's an incredible thing that happens. I don't know what your personal experience is. I have mine. You have yours. But when I had to, years ago, work through a major hurt Um, that I couldn't, just by my normal mechanisms of interacting, deal with. So here's some things that didn't work for me. What didn't work for me was simply the passage of time. Up until this point, I thought that time kind of heals all wounds. By the way, that's not true. In fact, Time typically has no impact on wounds other than can take the starkness of the moment away. So it's not quite as stark, but it doesn't take much even 10 years later to think about a thing and you'll find your heart and your emotions moving in that direction. Time alone, in fact, things not dealt with over time actually can be harder to deal with later. Now, a handful of things we're going to talk about today plus time, now that's a powerful dynamic so that you and I aren't held by the chains of what happened to us, which is really what we're talking about today when we talk about forgiveness. Forgiveness in our context today is really about not letting chains be put on your legs and on your hands because of what has happened to you in life. We learned last week that forgiveness is a, is a thing that you do on your own has nothing to do with somebody else. You do the forgiveness thing so that you can be free. That's kind of the beginning point of forgiveness. And the ultimate expression of forgiveness then is reconciliation, where maybe two relationships come back together. But reconciliation is a very different thing than forgiveness. Forgiveness you do on your own so that the shackles of the pain that happened to you doesn't continue to bind you. Reconciliation happens when two people agree to walk back together and attempt to do life together again on some level. As Christians, we're called, we're actually commanded to walk in forgiveness. We're going to talk about why a little bit in just a moment. But reconciliation, we're not commanded to do because we can't force another person to move in a healthy movement towards us. This is part of the wisdom of God. God gives us the command for forgiveness in part. You may not know this, but remember, he cares for us. He gives us the command to forgive that it has nothing to do with that other person. It has everything to do with you and me not walking in shackles because of what happened to us. And then he tells us pragmatically how a healthy reconciliation would look if we wanted to do life together. Now, some things are so horrific, reconciliation is impossible. Reconciliation is impossible when somebody who's hurt you has passed away. Reconciliation is not possible when the sin is so heinous or the person that did it is so broken that they can't respond in health so that you actually need a boundary and distance. This is all biblical. This is not pop psychology. But forgiveness itself, the raw act of you letting go of the offense, the pain in such a way that you're free, That's something that God who cares for you, who asks you to give that to him, can empower you to do. So when I sat down with my counselor and paid hundreds of dollars over several months to try to deal with and work through the stuff, here's a handful of things that we talked about that I had that opportunity to learn. So let me just give you a handful of things if you want to take a few notes, and then we'll get into the text and the message notes, all right? So forgiveness is dealing with another person's offense in a helpful manner. Sometimes when things happen to us, we don't deal with it in a helpful manner and by helpful manner i mean something that's generally healthy that puts you in a place to succeed that doesn't allow you and force you emotionally to cocoon away to recoil to pull back and doesn't cause you to overly respond emotionally but gives you when you deal with it in a helpful way gives you certain tools and strategies so that you can live in a broken world and not have all the brokenness of the world break you that's the power of forgiveness there's no way to come through without a few battle scars, but you can come through in such a way that the battle scars don't maim you completely, making you ineffective to all the things that God has for you and to the life that he's called for you and the life that he wants for you. Forgiveness is a decision to offer for Christians now. It's a decision to offer love to somebody who has betrayed that love. That's hard to do. But you know you're free from the pains that have happened to you when you can think about the offense and you don't have a desire to hurt the person who hurt you. That's when you're free. You know you're free from the pain that's happened to you when you can think about the things that occurred maybe over time and instead of being washed over with hurt, anger, a sense of injustice, you can actually believe it or not, have a little bit of sometimes pity, sometimes resignation, it is what it is. And sometimes even when it's full-blown, you can actually wish well on the person who's hurt you. Forgiveness is giving up resentment and vengeance, and it's attempting to foster compassion on the one who inflicted the pain. The truth is is when we forgive, we free ourselves from the bitter ties that bind us to the one who hurt us. What forgiveness does is it cuts the chain. One of the earliest writers in the early 70s on this forgiveness thing and trying to unpack it for Christians that had profound impact on many people was a theologian teacher by the name of Louis B. Smeeds. If you Google his name, S-M-E-D-E-S, you're going to find all kinds of stuff on forgiveness. And many people credit him as being one of the, the modern thinkers on this and helped, has helped hundreds of thousands of people walk in freedom. Here's what he says. Forgiveness is the key that can unshackle us from a past that will not rest in the grave of things over and done with. As long as our minds are captive to the memory of having been wronged, they are not free to wish For our good, for the good of others, for reconciliation, for hope of moving forward. As long as our minds are captive to the memories, he says. So Forgiveness is something we all really want to happen for us. Some of us, I hope, really want to be able to cut those ties that have our minds captive to what has hurt us. So as I'm processing this pain that had occurred to me with my counselor, we started talking about things that forgiveness wasn't. Because I had in my mind, forgiveness meant all kinds of things. And so we had our Bibles open. And of course, he had his PhD to rely on and had talked with hundreds of people who had been in similar circumstances with me. And for me, this is the first time through. So I learned again, the power of wise counsel. Here's some things we talked about. Forgiveness is not necessarily reconciliation, right? It's actually a gift you give yourself. You don't give it to the other person. When you walk in constant memory and pain about what happened to you, you're the one in prison, not them. And wishing that you could be free without taking steps to be free is an ultimate exercise in futility and frustration, They're actual steps that you can take. But many of us have to get over this emotional thing that if we forgive, somehow what happened doesn't matter. If we forgive, it doesn't mean anything. If we forgive, we let them off the hook. No, for today, narrowing our perspective, forgiveness is the thing you do for yourself in obedience to God so that you can walk free of those things that happen to you. So that means then that forgiveness is not pardoning people. When you pardon them, you basically say it happened, but it doesn't matter anymore, and we blot out the loss. That's not forgiving. We're not declaring it doesn't matter. Of course it matters. In fact, the whole reason we have to forgive is because it actually mattered what happened. And when you forgive, you're actually saying something really occurred that's weighty enough that requires my engagement. I'm not ignoring anything here. And forgiveness is not condoning what occurred. If I cut the ties in my mind and in my heart of what you did to me, I'm not condoning what you did. I'm choosing to not allow what you did to dictate any part of my life anymore. So it's not condoning. And it doesn't excuse harmful behavior. What it does is it deals with it in a weighty, significant way. See, I didn't understand all this. I had a simplistic understanding that said, just forgive and forget, time will heal our wounds. And none of that worked for me. I could not forget. So we set about the, the hard, mature, adult work of forgiving. Somehow in the back of my mind, I thought that forgiveness was losing. That somehow I would lose if I forgave. That somehow there was this cosmic score being kept and, and at this point, I'm on the, on the top of the, of the pile because this person over here was mean and insensitive and actually cruel. And somehow that made me more righteous and right because I had been done wrong. But if I let it go, then somehow I've even the playing field and I lose. I understand. I'm telling you a lot about my psychology. You should probably find a new church. There are other pastors who've never thought that way. I got stuck here and I couldn't let it go. But I learned forgiveness is not losing. What's happening is is I'm learning techniques to deal with the stress of the anger and hatred that was coursing through my body that I knew was wrong, but I could not turn it off. And on occasion, it would have physical implications. I would be tired. I'd be worn out. I'd think about it for a minute, and, and I would be edgy. So whatever it takes for me to like pop off in anger, like if I have to hit like a nine to do that, if I would think about this, I would start growing, you know, from twos to threes to fours to five, and then something small would happen at home, and I would react as if it was a nine kind of thing when it was a two kind of thing, but I had this low grade frustration over this other stuff. And that other person didn't care, didn't know, didn't understand any of that, had none of that in mind when they did the very bad thing that they did. I was the captive. And the other thing I had to learn is that forgiveness was not an easy way out. It isn't, as has been accused of some religious people, that religion is this opiate you take so that you can be dulled to the pain of life. No, no, no. Forgiveness is very hard work. It takes courage and authenticity and integrity and honesty. And you got to tell the truth to yourself an awful lot. It's interesting to me that in the pages of the New Testament, consistently, consistently, it seems like the high bar to which Christians are called is to live a life of active relationship with other broken, imperfect, immature people. This is a very difficult thing to do. So, so much of the New Testament focuses on this dynamic of what does it mean to live together together? to live in a broken world where one day everything's going to be made right, but right now it's not. So, so much of the New Testament deals with that. That's part of what's going on in Luke chapter 6, if you have your Bible up here on the screen. I want you to hear the words of Jesus here, and they are a high bar. And I, I want you to understand when we go through this, I'm not trying to get you to do anything that you don't want to do. I'm not trying to put a burden on you. The last thing that you need if you've been hurt by somebody and having a hard time letting it go is to have a burden from your pastor. You should forgive. That's not what's going on today. This is not an ought on you. This is not something I want from you or God wants from you. Forgiveness, you need to hear this. Forgiveness is what God wants for you. God wants it for you so that you can be free. He doesn't need it from you so that you get some kind of spiritual brownie points. He doesn't need you to forgive so that he can love you more, he can bless you more. He wants forgiveness for you so that you can more directly experience the abundant life to which he's called you. Remember, Jesus said, in this world you will have trouble. Nobody gets through this world without some scars. And the deepest scars, of course, are done by those people who have wronged you, who you had trust in or had every reason to have trust in. It's parents, it's a sibling, it's a best friend, it's a person in authority, it's a teacher, it's a coach, it's a pastor. Where you had reason to have high trust, you let down your guard, and then the humanity in that person or the brokenness in that person pours sand all over the oil of your life. So Jesus talks about it so that we can be free. It's not an obligation, although it is a command. It's a command because he wants us to live the life he has for us. So in Luke 6, on the screen, here we go. But to you who are listening, in one version of the Bible it says, if you have ears to hear, so are you listening today? Look at what he says. Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistrust you, who mistreat you. If someone slaps you on the cheek, turn to give them the other also. If someone takes your coat, do not withhold your shirt from them. Give to everyone who asks you. And if anyone takes what belongs to you, do not demand it back. Do to others as you would have them do to you. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who are good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. And if you lend to those from whom you expect repayment, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners expecting to be repaid in full. But love your enemies, do good to them, and lend to them without expecting to get anything back Then your reward will be great, and you will be children of the Most High because He is kind to the ungrateful and wicked. Be merciful just as your Father is merciful. I'd like to read those last two phrases again. Because He is kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. Be merciful just as your Father is merciful. Now, these are some of the hardest words of Jesus to put into practice. They're so hard that you can pick up some commentators. These are people, theologians, often with lots of training who kind of help you understand the complexity sometimes of the Word of God. Many commentators will say to you that what's going on here is Jesus is speaking in hyperbole. He's speaking in exaggerated language to make a point. Maybe. But saying that it's hyperbole doesn't mean you can dismiss the point. I mean, if he's speaking in hyperbole to make a point... What's the point? And if he's not speaking in hyperbole, then the point is a little bit more obvious. Minimally, what he's saying here is is that when you have been wronged, when people mistreat you, when they hate you, how you respond should be influenced by this truth, that God is kind to the ungrateful and wicked. we have to pause there for just a second. So, I was a bit of a math geek and... High school. Yeah. Believe it or not, I, I loved math. I was into science. It was a big, big deal. Like, I, I loved all that stuff. Still, still do, actually. And so we used to do these things called Venn diagrams. Anybody? Anybody? Venn diagrams? Yeah, there's four geeks in the room. I love you. You're my friend. A couple of engineers are like, yes. All right. So, a Venn diagram. A Venn diagram is like a box, which is all realities. And then in that Venn diagram, you have different shapes to show the relationship of some truths to others. Right? So if you have a box full of two types of Legos, reds and blues, you could have a box, which is all Legos, and then a circle, a part of that box represents the blue ones, and a part that represents the red ones, such that the red and the blue make up the whole. Are you kind of following me? Yeah. So in this in a Venn diagram understanding this verse, when the Bible says that he is kind to the ungrateful and wicked, the question is, is who makes up the group? of ungrateful and wicked, because that matters. I'm going to tell you something you want. I'm going to tell you something you want. You want God to be kind to you. Trust me on this. When the Bible says the Lord blesses these things and doesn't like these things, you want to pay attention, because if this is what the Bible says about God, we want that, and I'm just tell them, trust me, you want God to be kind to you. So in this particular verse, who is God kind to? Ungrateful people and wicked people. If you have any type of theological understanding at all of the New Testament, what kind of people did God come to save? Sinners. Another way of describing them is unkind and wicked people. So before we talk about all the unkindness that has happened to us, which is valid, and I'm not discrediting that, there is the beginning knowledge that to some degree, you and I were the unkind and wicked people. And God came and gave kindness to us, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. And then the very next line, then be merciful. So if you have received the kindness of God in in place of your, your ingratitude and in the place of anything that you have sinned on Then in that regard, now the imperative comes, here's the command, then be merciful. So the beginning point for Christians in understanding how to move forward in forgiveness, like the raw motivating force underneath it all, is is that you and I have been forgiven much. When we start with that, it doesn't make forgiveness easier, but it gives us the right perspective from which to begin the journey. Do you remember what happened to Jesus? The Bible describes a sinless life. And yet at the end of his story, right near the end, like just before the last chapter, he's hanging on a cross for crimes he did not commit. He's bearing the weight of the sins of the world that he did not commit. The only human to ever live who was perfect has taken on the sins of the world. That's the kindness of God bestowed upon me and you. Our sins held him to that cross. And for believers, we have an advantage in the forgiveness discussion because the very act of receiving Jesus as your Savior means that to some degree you have wrestled with the fact that you are not perfect, that you are a sinner, that you could be described in some moments as unkind or as ungrateful and in other moments as wicked. You could be described as knowing to do good and not doing it and knowing evil to avoid but running towards it. There are lots of ways to describe your sin and my sin. But at the end of the day, that's our beginning point. And because it is, we're called to be merciful. So your first message, Blank, let me tell you something here. Just as we kind of move through these movements. That robust forgiveness is much easier when there is recognition of wrong and admission of guilt, but the truth is, is the people that have wronged you, that, they're not going to do that a whole lot. That's going to be rare. It's not going to happen often that people walk up to you after a handful of experiences where they were mean, insensitive, unkind, unthoughtful, sometimes just raw cruel, and they're going to have an epiphany and say, here's the truth, I was completely wrong, or I was mostly wrong, and the things I did were wrong and I've come to grapple with my sin, and my offense to you, and I'm sorry. So robust forgiveness is a whole lot easier. The challenge is, is when that doesn't happen, what are you going to do? What am I going to do when the people who have wronged us do not want to make it right with us? you can get stuck in the same loop I was in that somehow if I dealt with it and if I got free of it, I was canceling out what they did and it didn't matter anymore. Oh, of course it matters. But I had to wrestle with two true realities about me. One is that I had been forgiven by my Savior. I also could point to a handful of people like my parents who forgave me for my stupidity and my sin. A couple of friends who had done that. So I I, I, had been a recipient of forgiveness Then the the other thing that I had to wrestle with is the only person stuck was me, that all of my pain and all my ruminations and all my thoughts about what happened wasn't in any way harming the person who harmed me. I had to let it go. This would be a great time to break out in a Disney song, but that would be kind of odd in the middle of this heavy sermon. Thank you for the chuckle. So the good news is, is that while you're working through this stuff of what happens when especially they don't want to admit what they did, message blank number two, you can actually wait with God in this process. Now, I put the the preposition with. Sometimes we talk about waiting on people. I know what this is like. I had a daughter. One of the reasons why Jill and I to this day don't ride to church together. I got tired of trying to ride to church with my kids, and by the time I got here, I had sinned seven times as I tried to talk with them about the challenges of getting into the car on time. It was horrible. We would have all kinds of little conflicts, right? So we just decided, we have multiple cars, we'll take different cars. So I got to come to church without having active sin in my life, and I had a better attitude the whole bit. I know what it is to wait on someone, right? You know what that is. I've waited on various, you know, partners, m- employees, and I've waited on my wife. And of course, they've waited. I know what that is. That's not what we're talking about here. When you're a believer and you're working through this stuff and time is passing, you don't wait on God. The difference is, is we wait with God in the middle of these kinds of things. And remember the God we're talking about. This is the God who cares for you. And I wait with him. I'm not alone hoping and waiting for him to show up. I'm actually with him because he reminds me repeatedly through the scripture, I'll never leave you or forsake you. Let me tell you a couple things that I was told. And they were like, for me and I hope they are for you, they were like oil um, and a stuck engine. They, they were like salve on a wound. Then when those things happened to you, God saw them. And when you were hurt because he cares for you, it hurt him. And the injustice that occurred, that thing that happened, that is an offense, not just to you, but that's actually an objective offense to God, an offense to God. So he hurts when you hurt. When you're moved and pained by the sins of this world that touch you, he's moved and motivated by them as well. Nothing. Nothing in your mind and around you that ever occurred because you're his child ever missed his gauge, his gaze. This is why the Bible tells us that at the end of time, God is going to make every wrong right. And wherever injustice has not been dealt with, he's going to bring a swift, and the Bible actually says, a terrible justice. And the Bible encourages you, Ben, then to give the concerns you have about this matter to the God who is with you, to the God who cares for you, to the God who saw it all, and the God who has the unique ability to deal righteously and correctly with every wrong that has has been transpired in this world, every wrong that has been done to you. I was given some hard truth. Ben, you don't have the ability, in part because of what happened to you, in part because you're flawed. None of us have the ability to completely deal righteously, fully, and totally, exactly correctly, with great balance in the pain that has happened to us. Especially the greater the pain, the less your ability to be totally objectively just. So I had to learn another lesson, that in my pain there had to be both an acknowledgement of it, but a humility that comes along with it. And that as I learned these various lessons, it was like the 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 big chain cutters, the big lock breakers, the big pliers, you know, three feet long, and you you squeeze them, and it's got a fulcrum at the top and it can break through metal. It's like those things are beginning to squeeze as I learned, for instance, that God cares for me, that I was not alone, that he saw it all, that it hurt him, that I had been forgiven a lot. And this begins me the beginning point of forgiveness allows me to at least think about mercy and that God would deal with the issue dramatically better than I ever could. That doesn't mean that there aren't some things I can do, but ultimately God's going to have to lead this process of me walking in freedom. And we stopped, by the way, talking about the other person altogether. We started talking about me and how I could be free. And I want to give you kind of five points, they're in your message notes, Now, beginning to walk free as a believer. And if you're not a believer, maybe you can benefit from some of this stuff, but this stuff is uniquely for Christians because in this we're actually grabbing hold of the partnership of the God who is with us to do it. My hunch is some of us in this room are stuck because we've been trying to do it on our own. Maybe you had some of the same misconceptions I've had So when we talk about waiting with God, there's one powerful word, which is the word that we focused on in the first message series of this year. It's the word pray. Pray. Now, praying doesn't seem like a lot of hard work sometimes, but when you start praying about the wounds of your heart, it's a big deal. So let me walk you through a couple things here. When we talk about waiting with God, I'm asking you if you've been hurt and having a hard time walking free. I'm asking for you to pray for God to search your wounded heart. By the way, this is what David, who wrote the Psalms, who killed Goliath, who was the king of Israel, this is what David prayed in one of the boldest prayers of the Bible. I dare you to pray this prayer and mean it Search my heart, O God, and see if there be any wicked way in me. Now, that's a bold prayer. Now, When we get to next step E, I'm going to give you something to think about, but it's not this prayer. I thought about it. God, would you this week, would you search my heart? And if there's anything in my heart, dark, black, wicked, would you just let me know? That's what David prayed. Let me tell you when you need to pray a prayer like this. When the injustice of what has happened to you is present and you're thinking about it and you're ruminating on it, the beginning point for a Christian to be able to walk with mercy and to get free is say God, before we talk about them, can we deal with me? By the way, this is not just an Old Testament thing. This is what Jesus said. Hey, before you try to take the speck of dust out of the sawdust out of your brother's eye, would you do this? Would you go ahead and remove the two by four from yours? Now, interestingly, he's not saying don't help take the speck out of your brother's eye. That's not what he's saying at all. He's just saying before you do, let's deal with you. And it could be that you're stuck in your forgiveness or in your unforgiveness, that the chains are still binding, that the hurt is still very, very present in part because you haven't dealt with you. I'm not saying the you that caused anything. Maybe you didn't cause it at all. But as a follower of Jesus, the beginning point of any engagement with the Lord is humility. And It's incredibly hard to be humble when you feel so right. And you might be, but you're still called to Humility. So, God, would you search my heart? So let me ask you a couple questions then to just to verify. Were you hurt because your sin was exposed? That happens sometimes. and We don't realize it. So somebody comes to us and they offer us words of insight. And the words of insight hurt us in part because what they talked about, we needed to hear, but we weren't really ready to hear it. This is what the Bible talks about when it says, faithful are the wounds of a friend. That's in the book of Proverbs. What it means is is that friends will come to you sometimes and say what you need to hear. Now, when I'm talking about friends, I'm talking about people who have a track record of being for you. I found a lot of people would like to come and tell you what they think you need to hear. If you're in any type of leadership, you're a manager, you're a boss, you lead a team, you're a pastor, whatever. A lot of people would like to tell you what you need. That's not what this Bible's talking about in this place. When your friends come to you, were you hurt because your sin was exposed? Here's another just probing question. Were you overly sensitive to something that was said? So not appropriately, but overly. Why? What's going on there? Are you tired? Can I tell you something? When I'm tired, Jill and I have been married 30 years. When we're tired, we know better than to try to have a meaningful conversation. You know why? Because she's horrible, guys. She, she, I'm kidding. I'm horrible. I am horrible. When I'm tired. I am horrible when I'm hungry. I'm horrible when I'm tired. In other words, you don't want to be my friend. Trust me on this. All right? So were you tired? Right? Emotionally tired, physically tired. Is what you are hurt by a pattern from this person? Or is this a first-time offense? These are just things to think through as you're trying to say, God, I want to engage this thing. I want to be free. And the beginning point for me is to know I've been forgiven, that I have been the one who was ungrateful. I've been the one who's been wicked on occasion. So I just want to bring humility to this thing because I don't have the insight you have. You were there. You saw it all. God, I need your perspective and let's start with me. Number two, when you're talking about waiting with God and working with God through unforgiveness, then you pray for the grace to think about what is, and this is from the book of Philippians chapter four, verse eight. You pray for grace to think about whatever is true and honorable and just and pure and lovely and commendable and excellent and praiseworthy. See, this is a a command that was given to believers that we're supposed to fix our minds when we think about things, especially the painful things. Is it true? Is it honorable, is it just, is it pure, is it lovely, commendable, excellent, praiseworthy? And you think about this for yourself and for this person or thing that hurt you. And when you begin to think about it that way, you begin to filter your thoughts. And you think below the emotion just a bit. It begins to help put the thing in perspective. Again, we're not talking to the other person yet. We may not ever be able to. You're thinking about you and when you're done thinking with grace-filled thoughts about the thing and about the person and about the event, you're not excusing. What you're trying to do is you're trying to get to the bedrock of what's really left. And then when you get to what's really left, you can actually ask God to take it from you. God, I'm going to give it to you because I know you care for me. And so it's appropriate and it gives weight to the offense when you try to define what really occurred. Number three, when you wait with God, you pray for discernment. God, what, what do you want me to do here? Especially with a friend. Do you want me to overlook this offense or do you want me to address this offense? The Bible gives, not conflicting, but two pieces of wisdom when a friend has offended you, has sinned against you, and wronged you. Sometimes it's appropriate to overlook it. The Bible says that love will cover a multitude of sins. It talks about a person being not given to offense. I said last week that if you're always offended, the problem is you, not the people around you. And then at the same time, the Bible says that there are offenses brought to us that we're supposed to address specifically. The Bible actually uses very strong language. It's the word rebuke. So after you've done some internal work, God, do you want me to deal with this? Or do you want me to overlook it? That's an important question, and the Lord will direct you, maybe not in a moment, but over time, because remember, he's with you. He cares for you. He wants you free. We're not even talking about the other person yet. This is about you and what you're going to do to break free of those sins that were done to you. Number four, now we start talking about interaction. If you must address the offense, pray that you would be honest and gracious, honest and gracious with your friend or the person about the way you were hurt, and that this person, your friend, perhaps, maybe your spouse, would respond with humility. You can't control this. That's what you pray for. That's very difficult to do. Because this is the point at which you begin to turn and pray for the other person to think about what that engagement might look like. Now, I know that in the room, some people, there's no way that's even possible or the sin was so offensive or they're in prison or whatever. And that, it's a different thing. But even in that, you can pray and say, God, when I think about this, when I talk about this, I want to be both truthful and gracious. This is Jesus saying that the truth should be spoken in love. When truth is given without love, it's unbearable. That's true when it's happening in your mind and when it comes out your mouth. And if you're a person who speaks truth without love consistently, let me just tell you what people around you are thinking. You're unbearable. You're unbearable. And when you're a person who only speaks with love and never tells the truth, the people around you are thinking you're unreliable. You're unreliable. It's both. It's honest and gracious. And that honesty and graciousness begins with your internal dialogue. And when it's pretty good there, then it's appropriate to begin to speak. And you might see some healing in yourself as you begin to walk in forgiveness. And you might begin laying the track toward reconciliation. Humility. I'm forgiven. I'm going to respond with mercy. I'm going to let my words drip with what is true and honorable and just and pure. It's going to impact my thoughts. And now the overflow of my thoughts and my heart, my mouth is going to speak with honesty and graciousness. Number five, when you wait with God, you can pray that you would do acts of love at all times, even with the difficulties, and that you would be able to live in harmony with one another. This is a biblical phrase. Romans chapter 12 This is what I mean last week when I said set some be nice goals It's very important for you and I to not add insult to insult Jesus said it this way it's not an eye for an eye or a tooth for a tooth and In fact in when there has been pain and a separation especially with people that you want to be in relationship with then the key is is for you to be kind to respond and to act motivated by love, with patience waiting for them to come. And the Bible talks about the patience of God. One of the reasons why the Lord has not returned to earth to shut the whole thing down is the Bible tells us in the New Testament that he is patient, not wanting anyone to come to ultimate condemnation. So he's patiently waiting his time. That's an act of his love for us. Now, I know that this doesn't deal with all of the issues around forgiveness and reconciliation. But I'm telling you, friends, if you'll start with you and ask God to help you and your heart, you will be profoundly surprised by what happens over the next three, six, 12 months as your heart softens to the work of God in you, as your heart softens to the work of God potentially through you to bring about reconciliation. But no matter what happens ultimately with reconciliation, even if it's not possible, no matter what happens there, you can begin to walk free of the pain of consistent sin that's brought to you. You can. People do it all the time. Next week, we're going to hear from a lady who wrote this book, Her name is Jackie Leggett, but the book title here is from Emily Foreman. She writes it under a pseudonym because there's some political stuff about the work they're still doing in North Africa that just can't be named yet, and there's still some stuff going on, and it's a very dangerous place. And she's going to share with you the story of how God showed up when her husband, who I grew up with, was murdered, serving as a social worker missionary in North Africa by al-Qaeda. And you're going to hear how she processed through that and found incredible redemption and grace of God in her own life and how her and her family, her four kids, were able to walk free. I'm telling you, it's possible. It's possible. You're going to have a chance to buy her book. Jill and I worked through this book. She sent us one just recently, and the 10-year anniversary of that event just happened. That's next Sunday. I want you to be here. And then the very next Sunday, you have a chance to hear from Debbie Morris, who wrote the book, Forgiving Dead Man Walking, And I read this book years ago, um, about 19 years ago. And uh, Debbie and I struck up a small friendship as she spoke in another environment where I was leading. And um, it's a powerful story of how at 16 she was raped over 30 hours. And her boyfriend was shot and stabbed and cut. He lived she lived. And uh, as she wrestled with what does it mean to live the rest of your life with that in your background. I don't know many people have gone through experiences like this. But I'm telling you, the power and the grace of God that is with you, that cares for you, is able to meet you in the middle of your pain and set you free. You're gonna have to do some serious business with him and I'm gonna encourage you to do it with him. Don't wait on him, wait with him. And make prayer a part of what you do and watch God show up. Would you grab out your Connect card right now? And let's take a couple steps together as a congregation. So next step A is, today I'm making Jesus my Savior and Lord. If you don't yet have a relationship with him, I just want to remind you a couple of things we said today. That he came to you patiently waiting. And When you couldn't save yourself, he rescued you. Now when you were ungrateful and you were a sinner, he reached down and literally rescued you from death to life. So if you want to be his child today, the Bible says it's pretty straightforward. You acknowledge, God, I can't save myself. So I trust the work that Jesus did on my behalf when he died on the cross and was resurrected from the tomb. I trust that work of Jesus to secure my relationship with you. If you want to do that, check the, take the pen and check next step A. When our offering buckets come around in a moment, just put them in there. Pray with me when we bow our heads, and then we'll send you some information about what it means to be a child of God. All right, next step B says, I want to be baptized. Our next baptism is on Easter Sunday, April 12th. Just a couple weeks ago, we baptized three people right here on this stage. It was fantastic, just a remarkable, remarkable thing that we experienced. So if you have questions about it, just check the box, put it in the offering bucket. Make sure we can read your email. We'll communicate with you. And our next step C says, pray this prayer. So it goes like this. Father, help me to remember how you were, how you pursued me, and would you use me to bring a forgiveness and reconciliation to those in my life? Would you help me remember that you pursued me? Would you help me bring forgiveness and reconciliation to those in my life? I think praying this prayer kind of every morning this week, we'll send you this email to remind you about it. it. Might just put you in the right place that either you or somebody you love might be benefited from your humble seeking God in the middle of a broken world. Now, next step D says, hey, sign me up for the local serve on March 7th. The first Saturday of every month, our church serves our local community. The next one is March 7th. If you check the box, you'll get several data points in your inbox. One email about what's coming up, but the next one is March 7th. Put it on your calendar. All the information will be in the email. The next step, E, says, please send me the link for the Grow classes. Remember that Grow is four experiences, week one, week two, week three, week four. They're all about growing as a disciple. They're all about understanding what it is to be a follower of Jesus, your gifting and your wiring, and how God can use your life to make a difference. We feed you, provide some child care. It's a great experience for you. If you haven't done them yet, just check the box, get the information, and click through, and you'll be able to. All right, now, if you call this church home, I want to give you a chance to give back to God a portion of what he's blessed you with. There are some ushers that are coming forward to receive your tithe and offering. Um, you guys uh, get to hear me say it a lot. You're an incredibly, incredibly generous church. And I was reminded um, this week of a very powerful uh, dynamic. And I just want to give you like a one minute, like mini lesson right here. So there are a lot of areas in my life where I struggle to make Jesus the full Lord of my life. I've been talking about one of them all day today. Like when I've been hurt, it's hard for me. I have to kind of go back and start all over again. But there's one place in your life where it's actually very easy, mechanically, to make Jesus the Lord of your life. And honestly, that's what you're giving. Let Let me tell you what, got into my mind years ago by a mentor when I give. When I give I take a dollar or multiple dollars and I basically say to God God this money doesn't have a hold on my heart you're more important and your work is more important and while I may struggle with this sin over here and this resentment over here and this lack of obedience over here on this matter right here with this money you are the Lord of my life and the Lord of my money And I dropped that in the offering bucket, declaring, Jesus is Lord over my money. Now, the reason why that's such a big deal is Jesus told us the number one competitor for our hearts, the number one, is money. Money will crowd out the space that he wants to occupy. So, years ago, Jill and I decided when it came to our marriage, when it came to our family, that we may fail at a lot, but we would not fail in creating space in our hearts by making money subservient to the lordship of Jesus. Now, I get to tell you that, knowing that so many of you in this room get that. I'm incredibly grateful that there are profound servants of the risen Jesus when it comes to money in this church, such that we're able to be generous. When our guests come over the next couple of weeks, we're gonna be able to bless them and the work that they're doing. And I don't have to get up here and beg you for money because you've already been generous. So I just wanna say thank you. And if you're struggling like I have with the Lordship of Jesus in any area of life, go ahead and get full control over the money category and once and for all settle the issue that Jesus versus money in my life Jesus wins every time let's pray about our next steps and our offering right now father thank you so much for the gift of jesus god i want to thank you that while i was still a sinner while i was still a sinner you pursued me god i want to thank you that when i've had to work through difficult things hurtful things i didn't work through them alone You were with me. You walked me through it. You were beside me. Father, I'm grateful that when I have had to press through stuff that was deeply hurtful, you reminded me that you were patient with me. You were gracious with me. You were merciful with me. And Father, I have to admit that even now it's difficult for me. But I'm so glad that while I press through, you are still patient. You are still kind. You are still a good father. You're still powerful. Now, Father, I lift up the members of this church, the people who call this place home, the people that are listening. And God, the truth is, as many of us have been hurt and damaged and wounded. And I pray today that you would remind us that you care for us, that that we would have the ability in a real and practical way to cast our cares upon you, knowing that deep down, We're not alone, that you care, that you love us. When we were hurt, it hurt you. So Father, I pray that you would make us agents of healing and restoration, forgiveness and reconciliation. That you would bind the brokenhearted. You would put oil on the wounds. You would bring joy back to people. And that the chains of of unforgiveness and bitterness would be broken and that your people would walk free. So, Lord, would you take our steps? Would you take our offering and cause them to go far and wide? We pray it in the name of Jesus, God, strong and holy Son. Amen and amen.